All right, so now we come to uh, Revelation 3, 7, which is the church at Philadelphia. Of course, I'm sure everybody knows that uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love. And the themes here in this letter are brotherhood and love and some other things. So, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world, on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and mine own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there's, there's several themes going through that. Um, one is brotherhood. One is keys and doors. Synagogue of Satan. It's kind of an interesting letter. One of the things that most people say about the church in Philadelphia is everybody wants to be in the church of Philadelphia, Right? Because it's one of two churches about which nothing negative is said. Right? I agree with you, Brian. It's not quite right. It is true that he doesn't jerk them up short like he does five of the other churches. That's true. But he doesn't say anything resoundingly good about them. In all the other churches where he says, I know your works, he then goes on to list the good works that they're doing. He doesn't really do that here. Okay. Now, one of the commentaries that I read, it happens to be one by Missler, says that he gives them seven different commendations. And to his way of thinking, I suspect that's true. But I'm not sure I see it that way. And the other thing that I see is this is not a homogeneously good and happy church because you have a promise to the one who conquers. And that indicates to me that there are going to be people in that church that perhaps are not going to conquer. Okay? So let's take a couple of these. I actually want to start with the synagogue of Satan um, because I think that will open up a whole bunch of things for us. I was talking with the youth today in yeshiva, and um, we're actually talking about the story of Mephibosheth uh, in Second uh, Samuel, was I think verse nine or chapter nine. I'm not going to go through the story of Mephibosheth, 
But basically, you've got the whole gospel in this one little chapter in 2 Samuel. You've got uh, the son of a king who is crippled by a fall shortly after he was born, uh, lives in fear in a place with no pasture, in fear of the king, actually. And the king reaches down and picks him up because the king has a covenant with his father, and the king then brings him up to sit and eat at his table. Okay? That's the whole gospel right there. And it's all in this little vignette in Second Samuel. Anyway, where that took us was to Genesis. And we were talking about the fact that in Genesis, we have the promise of a redeemer. Okay? And that specifically in, in Genesis chapter 3 uh, and verse 15, and this is the conversation that he has with uh, most translations call it the serpent, but it's actually Nahash, the shining one. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the first promise of a redeemer. In other words, we have two sets of offspring. You've got the offspring of the woman and you've got the offspring of the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. So you've got the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head, and the offspring of the serpent is going to bruise the heel. And most people, myself included, take that to be that Satan is going to wound the child of the woman but the child of the woman is going to kill Satan. So, if we've got two sets of offspring, you've got the offspring of the woman and you've got the offspring of Satan, we all know who the offspring of the woman is. That is David's greater son, the son of Jesse, the Messiah, Yeshua. And we, in fact, know that he was wounded by Satan in fact, he was killed, but he was raised again from the dead. So the wound was, although it was approximately fatal, it wasn't uh, eternally fatal. So that now takes us to the offspring of Satan. Oh, one other thing before we go to the offspring of Satan. One of the things that Yeshua calls us, and especially the whole book of Hebrews is about this, is the fact that we are brothers and fellow heirs of Messiah. Okay? So, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about who Messiah is, who Yeshua is, and it talks about the fact that we are fellow heirs or brothers to him. So, there's your connection to Philadelphia, because Philadelphia is talking about brotherly love. So, now we need the synagogue of Satan, and, and we've got the thing will come then full circle. Um, and of course, for the synagogue of Satan, you need to go to John chapter 8. And I'm not going to go through the whole, but this is a... Yeshua is, is duking it out with the Pharisees. Let's pick it up in 31. John eight thirty one. So Yeshua said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, 
we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, remember, these are believing Jews. Yeshua answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And again, that's what's going on back in Genesis 3. Right? Because when the woman believed the serpent and ate of the forbidden fruit, she essentially gave managerial authority over the earth to Satan. And essentially she became his slave, as did he. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Ah, so we have my father and your father, right? And right now, these people are asserting that their father is who? Abraham. Abraham. So, so right now, we're, we're, we're in an argument about parentage right now, okay? So Yeshua is talking about his father, and he's talking about your father, and this whole rift started off with them asserting that their father was Abraham. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Yeshua said to them, If, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Okay, now, again, going back up, Yeshua said, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and now he's saying, I told you the truth which I have seen from God. So who is his father? God, okay. Logically follows from the grammar, okay. 40, but you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So now we have Abraham contrasted to your father. Right? Right. That's right. In other words, they, they're claiming Abraham is their father. Yeshua is saying, this is the Abraham I knew, and that is in contrast to your father. Okay? You see what he's setting up here? They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So at this point, they are calling him a bastard. So they're going back to the questions about his parentage. Yeah, 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 we know what Mary said, but uh, what is it they're saying? The first child can come anytime. It's the second one that takes nine months. So what they're basically doing is calling him a bastard here. Yeshua said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the, tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. All right. So he has said, Abraham's not your father. God's not your father. Satan is your father. Okay? So what I'm suggesting to you here is when we're talking about the synagogue of Satan, what we are basically talking about is those who have gone over and sold themselves to the world. These people happen to be Jews. Children of Satan or members of the synagogue of Satan don't necessarily have to be ethnically Jewish. And we'll see that in this, in this letter to the Church of Philadelphia. All right. So anyway, we've got brothers. Okay, Yeshua is our brother. We have got the sons of God. And we have got, or the sons of the woman, I'm sorry, sons of the woman, and we've got the sons of Satan. Okay? So what Yeshua in this letter is doing is basically he is setting himself out as bringing his brothers in and saying, don't worry about the world because the world is the synagogue of Satan which it was prophesied clear back in Genesis 3 was going to be the children of the serpent. Yes. 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 Question was uh, confusion about who the offspring of the woman is and in the context we're talking about since I am asserting that that's the first promise of a Messiah the offspring of the woman is Yeshua. And Yeshua is able to trace his lineage back to Adam, which is vital for his authority. Okay? Because God gave the least of the earth to Adam and his descendants. So the only people who legally have power here are descendants of Adam. So for Yeshua to step up and do the things that he does and assert the things that he asserts, he has got to be a son of Adam. Yeah, the offspring of the woman later on in Revelation is going to be Israel. That's a different offspring of a different woman. Okay, Remember we have the, the dragon that, that tries to eat the offspring as soon as she's born and so forth. That woman is Israel. Okay. So yeah, we have, a, we have offspring of a woman in a, in a different context later on in Revelation. In the context of Genesis 3, the offspring of the woman is Yeshua. Okay? Did I go around any corners that I left anybody on? Okay. Um, so, what I'm suggesting to you is that I'm sort of laying out what's going on here in Philadelphia and why it's called brotherly love and why he says what he says. So, again, what I'm asserting then is the synagogue of Satan is the world system, if you will, 
as embodied in John chapter 8 by this group of basically unbelieving Pharisaic Jews who are actively hostile to the Messiah. But I'm suggesting to you it's also not limited to them. And I want to do one other thing before we get off of this. And I'm back in Revelation 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. All right, that phrase, who dwell on the earth, is going to become a code phrase, if you will, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. You're going to see the earth dwellers, or those who dwell on the earth, are going to be basically the ones who are the target of all of the plagues that are going to happen in the rest of the book of Revelation. So this is where that term is introduced. And what I'm telling you here is that term is those who have basically sold out to the world system and I would suggest are also then members of the synagogue of Satan. Okay? So again, what I'm saying is the subject of this entire letter is are you sons of God, brothers to Yeshua, or are you sons of the serpent and members of the synagogue of Satan? And, and, he, and he's basically calling the people in this church his brothers, which is to say, you are not of the synagogue of Satan. Am I saying that so it makes sense to everybody? Okay. All right, so now let's back up and take it one at a time. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What I'm suggesting to you is the Holy One, the true one, is the offspring of the woman that goes clear back to Genesis 3. In other words, he's referring to this promise back in Genesis 3 that God is going to send a Messiah who is going to be the descendant of a woman. And of course, we know Yeshua is the descendant of a woman, not of a man. Okay? And, and again, that's, that's an important distinction. So that, I'm suggesting to you, is the holy and the true one who has the key of David. Okay, that phrase occurs back in Isaiah. And it's specifically, uh, if I can find it here. Thank you. Isaiah 22, 15. Isaiah twenty-two fifteen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb in the, in the height, and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? I don't know that I read that very smoothly, but first off, you need to know who Shebna and Eliakim are. We'll, we'll, we'll meet Eliakim later on in the paragraph. Shebna and Eliakim are two officials in Hezekiah's court. One of, them is, one of them is the recorder, I think, and one of them is the chamberlain. And, she, and they're both high officials because when the Assyrians attack Israel, 
they had besieged Jerusalem. Remember when they took off the took out the uh, northern kingdom? Okay, they came all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem, and and stopped there. And the the Reb Sheka, who most people think that's a title, like the general, the commander of the Assyrians, is standing down there, taunting the people inside of Jerusalem, saying, "Don't depend on God and don't all this kind of stuff." And the two that go out to talk to the Reb Sheka are Shebna and Eliakim. So they are high officials in Hezekiah's court, is what I'm saying. And then they show up other places in the scripture, specifically at the siege of Jerusalem. And of course the, the Assyrians then retreat from Jerusalem, uh, basically laying the northern kingdom waste. But the point is here, Shebna, who is the higher guy, you know, he's, he's the higher one, is apparently stricken with pride. You've got this thing in here where you have cut for yourself a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. So that appears to me to be saying you are a high official in the court and what you've done is you have started taking on for yourself royal heirs. Much like another being that we know who was a high official in the court and started taking on royal heirs. Right? So the complaint about against Shebna is that he's too big for his britches. That's basically what's going on here. So now I am in verse 17, still in Isaiah 22. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you very strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Okay, so what's happened here is Shebna has gotten too big for his britches. God is going to take him down and is going to install Eliakim in his place. 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. All right, so what it's saying here is, Basically, he is going to be the head bureaucrat of the house of Judah for a time. And everybody's going to come to depend on him. And at some point, however, even he is going to be cut off. And of course, we know that happens when they go into the Babylonian captivity. So this is not forever. But but we have this business with the keys, key to the house of David, He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. All right. So his position, he has now risen 
to the king's chief of staff. So what he controls as the chief of staff is access to the king. Okay? That's what the keys represent. In other words, if you want to get on the king's appointment book, you've got to go through Eliakim. And so he has the authority to open the door to let you in to see the king or to shut the door and keep you out from seeing the king and nobody can gainsay him. In other words, whatever decision he makes is what happens. Yeah, Gideon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Comment was that the term open and shut also applies in scripture to wombs. And we find very often God will shut up a woman's womb or a nation's womb in the case of uh, Pharaoh and the Philistines, or he will open it. Okay? And we have here David, the son of David, David's greater son, who derives his authority from having entered the world through the womb of a woman. In other words, that's the legitimate gate to come into the the world. Anybody that comes into the world by any other gate is a thief and a robber. Remember, it says that in the New Testament. The only way into the sheepfold is through the gate. Okay? You come in over the wall or any other way, you're a thief and a robber. Well, the only way to come into the world and have authority here is to come in through the gate, which is the womb, which is to be born of a woman. That's the only legitimate way to come in. That makes Satan a thief and a robber. Exactly so. So what we have here, back to Revelation now, who has the key of David. Well, what I've just asserted here is that the key of David represents access to the king. So who then has control of access to the king? Messiah, Yeshua. And what he opens, no one can shut. In other words, if he gives you access, no one can, cl- can, uh, can take it away. If he shuts the door, no one can open it. And we have exactly that same metaphor in the parable of the ten virgins, remember? Okay, in the wedding feast, you got the ten virgins and, and the oil, and you know, half of them bring an extra jug of oil along, and the other half don't. And when the bridegroom comes the half that didn't bring any extra to discover they don't have enough. And so they go off to buy some more and in the, that time frame the five who are prepared go in and the door is shut. And they are outside of the door and can't get in. Okay, So this metaphor of doors, if you will, has lots of meanings in Scripture. Okay, verse 8. I know your works. And again... Other places where I know your works is said, there, is, there are some works listed. There are none here. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Okay, so again, we're back to the key of David and the metaphor of open doors. So what he's saying is, there is an open door before you. Just as for the ten virgins, there was an open door. Only five of them went through it before it closed. What I'm suggesting to you here 
is the fact that Yeshua has set before you an open door does not necessarily presuppose that you'll go through it. In other words, the fact that the door is open is wonderful. Praise God. Hallelujah. But you've got a part to play in this. You've got to go through the door. Because if you don't go through the door, when it finally does shut, you'll be on the outside and then no one can open it. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we'll, we'll get to this word, what that word is in just a minute, because he'll define it himself later. And so one of the things that they've done is they, is they are not, in fact, powerful. You know, they are not, in fact, big-time major warriors for Christ or any of that kind of stuff. They have very little power. But the one thing that they do have is they have not denied his name. Comment was if if the the reference to having little power is worldly, it's one thing. If it's spiritual, it's yet different. But in neither case is it especially complimentary. Uh, you can, however, read it in a complimentary fashion, which is to say, having no power, you have persevered. Verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here, again, we have the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not. This goes back to our conversation in John chapter 8 between Yeshua and the Pharisees, where they said, we are the children of Abraham, but we're not. They said, we are the children of God, but we're not. And in both cases, they were lying, and Yeshua said so. That was the whole point of that John chapter 8. This is what you guys say, you're lying. Because you're just like your father. So we're, we're talking in exactly the same context here. And if you'll notice, historically, that group of people was heavily involved in persecuting followers of Yeshua, both before and after his death. And if you remember in, in the book of Acts, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Peter's got to be talked into it. Remember, Peter gets the vision of the sheet, and then when Peter finally does show up at Cornelius' house, and they've been talking for a little while, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit lands on the Gentiles, and all the Jews say, whoa, what is this? That's the last thing we were expecting. So what I'm suggesting to you is, culturally, the Jews do not expect... Gentiles to be beloved of God and the Messiah. And so what Yeshua is going to do is he's going to bring those lying ones who say they are Jews and are not. Notice I've said two different things here. I've said this two different ways and in two different contexts. One I've got, we've got the liars, the synagogue of Satan and also, and all that. Then I have also said culturally Jews, all kinds of Jews, both the liars and the truth tellers, didn't expect that the Holy Spirit was going to fall on Gentiles. So, so I'm using Jews in two different contexts. There. Don't, please don't be confused. But what he's going to do is he's going to drag the lying ones by the beard and bring them to these people who he loves, and he says, see, you guys are wrong. I love these people. They are my brothers. 
They are from Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, and I'm the brother who loves them. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Patient endurance. Okay, that's another interesting concept. Revelation 1.9 I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Yeshua was on the island called Patmos. So what John is saying here is I am your partner in the patient endurance that is in Yeshua. Then we move forward to the church of Ephesus. And I'm in uh, chapter 2-2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who, know, who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you have, are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this is one of the things about which Ephesus is commended. And notice Ephesus is commended about a whole lot of other things too that Philadelphia is not commended for. And I'm suggesting that by the time we get to Philadelphia, patient endurance is about all we got left. I'm serious. And and clearly that's no small thing. I don't don't mean mean to denigrate it, but... You know, Ephesus had a different problem, but they also exhibited patient endurance, and they did a bunch of other good stuff. Well, for, because of perseverance, they're, going to, they're not going to go through that hour trial. Right. Yeah. And, and you could certainly infer that those in Ephesus who are exhibiting patient endurance will share in the same fruit as those in Philadelphia who are also exhibiting patient endurance. That's my inference, but I'm not God and he is, so he gets to decide. And then we'll fast forward again to the church at Thyatira. And so now I'm in Revelation 2.19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So again, good things to say. I mean, he'll have some negative stuff to say about him, but he's got some good stuff to say about him, among which is patient endurance. So let's see if we can figure out what that is. And go back with me, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Comfort's going to be a key phrase here. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. All right, so... That's a bit Pauline, so you've got, we are afflicted, comforted by God, so that we in turn may comfort those who are afflicted. With the comfort we were given by God. With the comfort we were given by God, exactly. Okay, the comfort all comes from God. We, are, we have become bearers or carriers of it because we received it when we were afflicted and we are to pass it on when others are afflicted. Okay? Verse 5, 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. So what Paul is saying is, if I'm afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So the comfort that he has to pass on from God is something that you receive when you patiently endure. Patiently endure what? Suffering. So one of the things that we can infer with this patient endurance in the three letters to the churches in Revelation, Ephesus, Thyatira, Philadelphia, is that they're getting hassled. It is not all beer and skittles for those churches. They have got some problems. And they are, in fact, patiently enduring through those problems, never turning loose of their confession, never turning loose of their belief in God. And because of that, God will send them comfort. And because of that, God will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the earth dwellers. Did I say that's what made sense? Okay, cool. Second place is in uh, 2 Timothy 2. And I'll pick it up in verse 22. 2 Timothy 2.22 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So again, we're back into slavery to sin, right? As a mature believer, you can expect to have people come after you with the intention of doing evil. Okay, And you're to patiently endure that, correcting them with gentleness, the hope being that with your gentle correction, you can draw them to God and bring them to repentance so that they can escape what's stored up for them. Again, did I say that's what made sense? So one of the things that happens very often is people get really fiery when they're talking about Scripture with unbelievers. And what this is saying is, don't do that. Be even-tempered and gentle. Okay? And lead them to God. You can't drive them to God. You've got to leave, lead them to God. And you only do that with a patient and gentle spirit. But again, this patient endurance shows up here. So again, the, the, the connotation here in the Church of Philadelphia is that they are undergoing trouble. They're bearing up under it. They are keeping their testimony. And they are kept the word. And the word that they are keeping is the word about patient endurance. That's in verse 10. Okay? 
And one can then extrapolate, going back to Timothy, that they are doing things like meeting the objections and the criticisms of the world in a way that is designed to draw people to God. And that they are enduring at least some harassment for doing that. And as his reward, I will keep you from the time of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. And we've talked about earth dwellers. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And again, this goes back to patient endurance. Paul talks about running the race, right? Uh, this is Paul, 1 Corinthians 9:24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So again, what he's saying is, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. In other words, there are years and years and years of keeping up that are going to be expected of you, and you are to persevere lest your prize get snatched away. What's the passage in Isaiah? They will mount up with wings of eagles. They will run and not tire. They will walk and not faint. Something like that. I don't remember it precisely. But if you'll notice that, there are three stages. Mounting up with the wings of eagles. Man, you're up there flying. And that, I think, corresponds to the way most people feel when they first discover God. And they shall run and not be weary, I think. And then walk. And most of your life, you spend walking. You don't spend soaring with eagles. You know, soaring with eagles is, you know, a relatively short part of your life. Most of it is spent walking. And what Paul is, what Yeshua, as as well as Paul in, in Corinthians, but Yeshua here in Revelation is talking about, is hold fast. Continue to walk. Don't give up. Lest someone snatch your crown away from you. Okay? So it's, it, it, it's a lifelong thing. And as I read this, it's not the case that, you know, you can show up at an altar call and, you know, say a few words and then go back to whatever it was you're doing because that ain't the way it works. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Where do pillars stand? In the case of the temple, they flanked the door. If you look at Solomon's temple, there were two pillars. Okay, One of them was called Boaz, and the other one was called uh, Yachin. And, one of, and Boaz means the strength of the Lord, and Yachin means the Lord will establish. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's what we're talking about. Being made a pillar in the temple, you flank the doors. Because that's where the pillars were in Solomon's temple. And I'm, and I'm suggesting this is just... Continuing with the metaphor of keys and doors and 
uh, so forth that he's established in this letter. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Remember? Who opens and no one will shut. In the Old Testament, the metaphor is, I can no longer go out and come in. Remember that from you know, Moses when he's about ready to die? He says, I can no longer go out and come in. That, that's, again, a metaphor that's all throughout uh, the Old Testament, at least. In other words, I used to go out and come in at will. I used to be able to you know, go boldly wherever I wanted to do. I can't do that anymore. I'm an old man, if you will. Here it says, he will make you a pillar in his temple and never shall he go out of it. In other words, you will stay in the temple of the Lord forever. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So there'll be three names written on this pillar. And by the way, in the pillars in Solomon's temple, there were names. One was Boaz, and one was Jachin. Okay, those were the names of the two pillars. So this idea of having pillars being named, again, goes right back to uh, I think it's 1 Kings. 1 Kings 7.15, if you want the reference. The other part of that is in a bit, as we get, if we ever get out of the churches, when we get into the body of Revelation, one of the things that's going to happen is he is going to label the 144,000 and he is going to write on their forehead a name and a mark. And he will come with his, a name written on his thigh. Mm-hmm. That is a new name. Yep, and he will have his name written on his thigh. Sure, good. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing with new names goes throughout. And if you go back to, uh, I think it's Jeremiah. Where's the one where Jeremiah is standing there and the guy shows up with the inkhorn? And is, yeah, it's in Jeremiah. And this guy goes through with the inkhorn and writes on the forehead of all the people who are of God. He writes God's name on it. And everybody who doesn't have the name of God on his forehead, the angel of death then comes through and slaughters. And when it comes, the mark is going to be a counterfeit of the mark of God. And, and I suspect that one of the counterfeits is going to be don't take a mark. Because God, over and over, marks his own. And that's what's being talked about here. There's going to come a time of marking. And God's going to mark his own, and Satan's going to mark his own. And, and the problem is going to be the confusion, figuring out who's who. And I, and I think a lot of the church is going to contribute to that confusion. Because there will be denominations out there who say, don't take any mark whatsoever. There will be denominations who will say, of the mark of Satan, this is okay to take. Oh, I'm th- sorry, thank you. Yeah, the inkhorn passage is in Ezekiel 9.4, where the angel goes through and marks all God's people. But one thing, I, I, I may have left you with a false impression. I, I don't want to do that. If you are with God, you don't need to worry about the confusion. I'm not saying that you need to figure this out yourself. God will do that and take care of you. You don't need to be afraid. All I'm saying is that the enemy is going to try and create all kinds of confusion. And two of the lies he's going to tell is, my mark, the enemy's mark, is okay. And you have churches tell you that. 
And the other one is, oh boy, you don't want to take any mark at all. But I'm not saying you've got to walk around in trepidation fearing that you're necessarily going to be tricked. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.